All right, we are continuing in our study of the confession, and um, as you probably know, uh, the confession is the doctrinal standard of our church, and it's what we believe and preach. And uh, this series, which is going to take us through the end of this year, is to kind of introduce you to uh, this summary of the Christian faith, and hopefully argue and show you why it's important as well. Um, We want to know what we believe and why we believe it. Our present focus now turns to chapter 7 through chapter 20, which is the covenant. It's a new section of our confession. Um, If you'll remember uh, previously, we began with the first principles. And the first principle is the basis upon which all theology is built. Remember scripture in chapter 1. In the doctrine of God in chapter 2 and chapter 3, in creation in chapter 4 or 5 and 6. Well, now the next section of the confession turns to the idea of the covenant. And what we see is what we'll look at today and next week the covenant defined. It turns to the covenant servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant setting, the covenant blessings, the covenant graces and the covenant reception. So this is the structure of our confession in this next major section. And I'm going to return to that in just a moment and consider why this is. I just want to lay out, at least for you today, what's going to be our our outline. Or, um, yeah, the the things that we will consider today, which is in paragraph 1 and 2 of chapter 7. I'm going to start with an introduction, but we're going to see the necessity of covenant, and we're going to see the complication of sin as well. So that's what we're going to look at today. Covenant, why, why it's important, why it's necessary, and what sin kind of um, brings to the table before next week we'll look at, obviously, God's answer to sin in relation to the covenant. So let me start. I always start by polling the uh, congregation, right? It's the easiest way to go. Why do you think is the bulk of the confession categorized under the idea of covenant? Anybody want to? Sam? I'm sorry, what? Because covenant is how God relates to his people. That's a great answer. Anyone else? Why, why is chapter 7 through 20 all categorized under the idea of, a, of covenant? Jill? Yes, so we have an old covenant, which makes up the Old Testament. And then, as Jill said, we have... Our salvation is described in terms under the new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Cody? Yeah. 
Yeah. Our salvation doesn't happen in a vacuum. There is a structure. There is an order to it. There is a category, for lack of a better term. So the confession recognizes this, and that's why um, great answers for why the bulk of the confession is categorized under covenant. Let me give you a couple of things. I'm building off of what was already said. Covenant gives us the big picture of Scripture. As was already said, we know that the Old Testament is categorized under the Old Covenant. Paul himself speaks of this uh, at length in the New Testament. The Old Covenant contrasting with the New Covenant. We know that when Jesus came, he said, this is the cup of the New Covenant in my blood. We know that the Old Testament prophesied of the New Covenant. So our salvation, um, our understanding of God's purposes in the world are categorized by Scripture itself under the terms of covenant. The word covenant uh, appears over 300 times in Scripture. I I would say that the idea of covenant is the concept of it appears even more than that. I mean, we know... You know, just on the on the on the on the surface of things, that that God made a covenant with with um, Adam, although that's disputed. But we know He made a covenant with Noah. We know He made a covenant with Abraham. We know He made a covenant uh, through Moses. We know He made a covenant with David. We know the Lord Jesus Christ made a covenant with His people. It's kind of important to understand the idea of covenant. It gives us the big picture of Scripture. Um, I'd also say that covenant shows us the purpose and goal of creation and redemptive history. When God speaks and He reveals Himself and His purposes, He speaks through the terms of a covenant. So we want to know these things, we've got to look at the idea of a covenant. This is His vessel for communicating to the world, Revelation of His purposes in creation and redemption. And another way I like to speak of it, it's popular around here because the covenant students and relationships and all that, uh, but covenant gives us the, the DTR between God and His creatures. It defined the relationship. Right? You know, I like you, you like me, but what is this? Is this going somewhere? Maybe you've heard the the phrase, it's not religion, but it's a relationship. Okay. Well, what is the nature of that relationship? Are we friends? Are we buddies? Are Are we more than friends? Are we colleagues? Are we co-workers? Are we citizens? That's why we talk about the covenant membership. The covenant membership, our membership, our terms of membership, define our relationship to one another. We're not just a bunch of Christians that come in here that have no relation to one another. That's why marriage is described as a covenant as well. It's not just two people who love each other, who want to live together, who want to start a family together. It's not just two people who can, can put up with one another. Marriage covenant, the covenant defines, it gives parameter, structure, definition to the nature of the relationship. And so what we see in Scripture is that the way in which God has chosen to relate to us is by way of covenant. That's His chosen means to relate to us. I I often say, you know, God doesn't just shout from the heavens and 
and, um, you know, just expect us to just, okay, God, we, we know it. We just, we've heard, you've told us, but that God stoops because of our weakness. So he gives us things like covenant signs, like a rainbow. I'm not going to flood the earth again, but I'm going to show you. He gives us covenant, uh, 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 Abraham covenant signs like circumcision. He gives us the cup of the new covenant. And the bread, the bread of life. These things uh, serve to, to strengthen and assure us of his love, but it also helps define our duties and responsibilities and relationships and punishment and reward as well. The day you eat is the day you die. That's a covenantal um, a stipulation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's a covenantal dis- uh, um, uh, structure, commandment, obligation, call, duty, responsibility, all of those things. So, covenant is a means by which we know we can expect certain things from God defines the relationship. Does that make does that make sense? I know it's cold in here and you're distracted, but I want to make sure that we understand that covenant is the terms by which we know how God will act. He's bind, bound himself to it, to us in that way and vice versa. So this is why the confession, this is why covenant theology is so important in understanding Scripture. Let me, let me throw it to you this way. How do you know it's not a sin to eat shellfish? It says so in the Old Testament. That's a great answer. Maybe I'll have to refine that to, uh, uh, to, to answer back to... To, to Mark's uh, very obvious answer, the New Testament tells us. What about things the New Testament does not specifically speak of? You know, it says um, in the Old Testament that you don't sow two kinds of seed. Uh, it says in the Old Testament that you don't wear two types of garments. It tells men in the Old Testament not to shave um, in certain places and wear their. How do we know that's not a sin? Because we define, we understand the covenant. What covenant are we under? We're not under the old covenant. The New Testament tells us it's obsolete. It's, pass, it's, it's passing away. It's done. It's over. We're under the new covenant. So we look to the terms of the new covenant to understand how we are called to live and how we are called to act. That's why we're Baptists, but uh, I'll get into that later. So that's another day. We, you know, covenant of circumcision does not define who is in and outside the church. We look to the terms of the new covenant to understand that. So it's so important. You can't just say, well, there's a verse that says in the New Testament that we don't have to obey that. That's not enough because there's too many uh, um, laws in the Old Testament for you to do that with. that aren't mentioned in the New Testament. If you don't understand the idea of covenant, you're not going to understand the Christian life. You're not going to understand law and gospel. So the covenant's important. All right. Any questions or comments on that? Let's turn then to of God's covenant. 
And I want you to think a little bit about what's happening as a whole um, in this confession. We just looked at sinful humanity in chapter 6. The confession is moving now in chapter 7 to salvation and the means by which salvation is accomplished. Right? Scripture, God, creation, sin. Oh no. So now we get what happens in relation to sin. Well, redemption. And the confession goes on to speak about the covenant of grace that comes in light of the fall and sinful humanity. So, um, we come to our second point. That was my introduction. Why covenant's important. Now let's think about the necessity of the covenant. London Baptist Confession, chapter 7, paragraph 1, says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they can never have obtained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He's been pleased to express by way of covenant. Let's work through this a little bit line by line in the necessity of the covenant. Why is covenant... Necessary because of the distance between God and the creature. That's actually an inadequate graph or visual illustration for the distance because it's infinite, it cannot be quantified, but you get the point, hopefully. There's a difference between creature and creator. Um, When we talk about the doctrine of God in chapter 2, we talk about how God is quantitatively and qualitatively different than us. He's not just bigger and greater and grander quantitatively. He's not a superhuman, but He's something altogether different than us. Qualitatively, He's a different quality. He's a different substance. He's a different being. Because we are creatures and He is not. So because He's both bigger, greater, grander, and altogether different, alien to us in one sense, even though we're made in His image, that is the, uh, the contact point by which we know Him, in, for lack of a better term. But we cannot know Him ultimately unless He's chosen to reveal Himself to us. We are not God, even just in creation, even setting aside the idea of sin. We can't know Him unless He chooses to reveal Himself. He must condescend to us and reveal Himself if we are to know Him. So a covenant is necessary because of how different we are from Him. He's got to stoop and reveal Himself to us in some way. And the confession is saying, He's done this by way of covenant. And without the idea of a covenant, you can't understand fully how he's chosen to do that. But the confession then uh, uh, adds a note of clarification here. and wants to make sure that we know exactly what they're arguing so that we understand 
uh, we don't jump to, to, uh, to false assumptions. It says here, okay, just, just to be clear, we owe God obedience regardless. He is creator, we are creatures. All creatures owe Him obedience simply because God created us. It's pretty obvious. A creature owes obedience to his creator. That's why the confession says reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator. Reasonable creatures meaning, of course, uh, it's distinction from the animals in that sense. But it's but his point, the, the point of the confession, it's, it's underlined by Luke 17.10. This is where Jesus tells his disciples when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what is our duty. Again, the point being that it is our duty to owe obedience to our Creator. And that that duty, excuse me, that, that obedience is not in itself merit, mer, uh, meritorious. Am I saying that right? Meritorious. It does not merit anything. This is important. Um, you do under you you understand, right? That um, God doesn't owe us anything. That's what it's saying. God doesn't owe you anything. He is the Creator. He doesn't owe you eternal life, even apart from sin. Mark. Is this one reason why it's so hard to 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 uh, accept the reality that we can't just choose our salvation? Yeah, but but you know that that is true in the context of sin, but it's also true in the context of just being a creature as well. Wait a second, I want what I want. What do you mean God doesn't owe me something? Like I I deserve. I have my rights. I deserve this. Confession is saying, look. God doesn't have to give you life. Even without sin, God doesn't have to give you life. But eternal life? If our obedience as creatures cannot merit or earn eternal life because of the creature-creator's distinction, that's what it's saying. God's so big, you're so small, He doesn't owe you eternal life. What then must happen? God must condescend to us. And God has chosen to do this by way of covenant. This is the need for covenant. We can't know Him apart from covenant, Him choosing to reveal Himself and condescend to us. And much more than that, we can't obtain to the reward of life apart from covenant as well. God has to stoop and say, okay, I'm going to promise you eternal life. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to grant this reward to you. And He's chosen covenant as the means to do that. 
So just to conclude this point, covenant is the method that God has chosen to grant mankind the reward of life. The reward of eternal life. It was true of Adam in the covenant of works. It's true of the covenant of grace as well as we will see. God stoops to his creatures. And in order to reveal himself and give us life, he's made a covenant with us. Any questions before we move to the next paragraph? Uh, Let me throw this out to you. What's the difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology at this point? Does anybody know what dispensational theology is? (laughs) Chris is like, no. (laughs) Yes, dispensationalism, instead of looking at the covenants, they look at various dispensations of how God deals with his creatures. It's similar... But they determine, like for example, is it okay to eat shellfish or not, based upon kind of the, 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 the dispensation of history that we are in, rather than defining it strictly by terms of a covenant. And one of the problems with that is that they refuse to recognize covenants that aren't explicitly named covenants in the Scripture. So dispensationalism would, would reject the idea of a covenant of works and covenant of grace. Um, I don't have time to go into all those arguments here, but we know from Scripture itself that, for example, we read the narrative of God making a covenant with David um, in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, and yet the word covenant isn't used, and yet later in Scripture it's referred to as a covenant. If the concept is there, we know a covenant is there. We can look at Adam in the garden, and we can see clearly a covenant is there. Do this and live. Don't do this and die. Or I should say, eat and die. Do not eat and live. It's the promise, the stipulations before him. So, in that sense, dispensationalism, I think, falls into some pitfalls by trying to define our relationship with God outside the terms of a covenant, rather than looking at God's promises and, and the oaths that he has made um, and the signs that he has given uh, to give us our understanding of how he deals with us and what he expects of us and what he's promised us. Can I ask a question or make a observation? Yeah. So I agree with everything you're saying. I think it's wonderful. Um, looking back on my life personally, as a believer, I haven't always embraced yeah. this side of salvation. I still sometimes think, well, God, I have held my end of the bargain, which I really haven't. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, oh man, that's such a big can of worms. Um, One way of putting it, it might make you feel a little uncomfortable, is that we have no special claim on common grace as Christians. The terms of our covenant are forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit, new heart, right? Uh, Remade. and eternal life. The, the, the terms of the co- new covenant are all spiritual. And so when bad things happen in our life, or the health and wealth gospel, for example, we tend to think, I'm God's special child. Why is this happening? I, I love Him. I believe in Him. I serve Him. 
this shouldn't be happening. And we're misunderstanding the terms of the covenant. The terms of common grace, the common grace covenant, are equal among all people. God's common grace falls upon all people equally as he wills, where he um, um, essentially, um, now, now I'm drawing a blank, Common grace in which he preserves the world um, for the building of his church and the accomplishing of his purposes. So we can look at a, at a rank unbeliever and say they have God's common grace too. We can see militant atheists, people who hate God, make lots of money and enjoy great things in life and live long lives. Um, and we're like, but they're evil. They hate God. Well, they're under common grace just like we are. And we have no special claim to common grace as Christians, the only thing that we have in relation to common grace is that we have the ear of our Creator and God who listens when we pray. Lord, I'm suffering in common grace. I'm sick. I'm broke. I'm whatever. We have the promise that He hears us and will answer, but we can't appeal to the covenant and say, You must heal me. Like we can say, Lord, I've sinned. I confess. You must forgive me. I know that's strong language. He's faithful and just to forgive us. He's bound himself that when we call upon him to forgive our sins. And we can, in a sense, demand that. Again, I use that reverently and carefully. But on the basis of Christ, that's been paid for. You've promised to forgive. And he will do it. We can't do that regarding common grace. Great question. Chapter... 7, paragraph 3, last point. The complication of sin. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So we see that the covenant is necessary just because creature-creator distinction. But now sin enters the equation. What does that mean? That, you know, that throws a wrench in the whole idea, doesn't it? That's what the confession is recognizing here. That's what the term moreover means, the first word of paragraph two. Not only do we face this obstacle of the creator-creature distinction, but now we have sin enter the equation. Now we're really in need of a condescending God. Now we're just not a creature or a subject, but we are a rebellious subject. And the, and the confession is, is um, recognizing here that, and it goes back to the previous chapter, that, that man cannot recover himself from his fall, after the fall. There's no other way, since we've brought ourselves under a curse... Curse being covenantal language. Hey, that's why we know um, there's a covenant of works uh, in the garden with Adam. 
Curse is covenant language. We see that later in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. If Adam is said to be cursed, that means he's cursed according to the terms of the covenant. Man cannot recover himself. Sin has complicated things. But amazingly, Confession says it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. I love the language here. It pleased the Lord? You know that your salvation is not simply because God just felt obligated. It's not just that, you know, he had pity. Although he did. It's not just for this or for that. It pleased him. It brought him joy in that sense, to use creaturely terms. It made him happy to make a covenant of grace with him. And, and, and you hear that, and you're like, oh, that's special, but think about what the confession just said. Chapter 6 about sin. Will we raise a high hand to God and say, I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't care what you say. I don't care that I'm a creature and you're the creator. We're rebels. We hate God and neighbor by nature, the Heidelberg Catechism says, rightly so. And yet God is pleased. He's pleased to make a covenant of grace with this rebellious creature. This is, this is um, covenant theology inextricably bound to God's pleasure. He's pleased to make a covenant of grace. He's pleased to freely offer life unto sinners. Think about this idea of freely offering life unto sinners. Um, the covenant servant comes in chapter 8. That's how this life is offered through Christ. This life is offered through effectual calling, chapter 10, and in justification, chapter 11, and adoption, chapter 12, and sanctification, chapter 13. And what does God require to give us life? What does He require of us for life? Well, if it pleased God to give us life, surely He's going to expect something from us. He's going to get His pound of flesh, right? You're going to have to earn it now because you've really messed things up, Adam. You're going to have to live up to this if you want to enjoy you know, the reward that you don't deserve, by the way. No. He <laughs> gives it to us as a gift. Freely. The gift of life is given us to us apart from merit. Apart from works. Apart from our efforts. Apart from our accomplishments. Apart from our wisdom. Apart from our will. This is how different it is from Adam. Adam was given the reward of life, but he was, but he was under terms of obedience to that. He had, in that sense, to earn life. Which, of course, how God deals with Adam in the garden is how God deals with His Son Christ. That's why 
Jesus retraces the steps of Adam. He faces the temptation of Satan, right? He, he exercises prophet, priest, and king, which is what Adam failed to do, right? So the, 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 uh, God's dealing with Adam teaches us about God's dealing with Christ and vice versa. But with us as a covenant of grace, life is freely offered, not of works, but He requires of us simply faith. Faith. These are themes and ideas that the confession is going to pick up on in later chapters. It's laying the groundwork right here. That's how it all fits together under this idea of covenant. Salvation. Covenant. We can't save ourselves. God condescends. It requires of us faith. Well, finally then, <clears throat> the, the, the confession nails down that this grace is promised unto the elect, those who are ordained to eternal life, those who by the Spirit are made willing and able to believe. And I just want to ask you, why? Why do you think the confession says this? Why does it make this point now? Um, let me go back here for a second so you can see it. See this last section here. Uh, after the, uh, uh, after that they may be saved, we see a semicolon and we get, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit and to make them willing and able to believe. Why do you think that is added here in the confession? Cody? Yes, yes, that's, that's, yeah. Thank you for saying that so that I don't seem like the bad guy here. Um, on one hand, it anticipates what comes next, effectual calling, election, all that. But on the other hand, rather we're Baptists. Baptists believe that the covenant of grace is made with the elect. Presbyterian or Pano Baptists believe that the covenant of grace is made with Believers and their children. The Baptists are laying the groundwork right here. That faith is the condition. Regeneration, the gift of the Spirit, is necessary to be brought into this covenant. And that eternal life is inevitable. And it's contrasting that with, with Adam in the sense that these things are accomplished by God. Don't you see that the, the, the covenant of grace... It says requiring of them faith. But then it says God gives this to the elect. That's called monergism rather than synergism. Synergism working together. Monergism, God works. It's, it's emphasizing, look, this covenant of grace is not God doing His part and you doing your part. God freely offers. And then even the demand of the covenant faith he himself accomplishes and gives. It's amazing. That's why Ephesians 2, 10, 2, 2 8 through 10, right? By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. What is not of yourself? Grace and faith are not of yourselves, but is the gift of God. 
so that no one may boast. And not only that, but good works, Ephesians 2.10. That God has, God has ordained those good works that we should walk in them, giving us the power of the Spirit to do that. From beginning to end, our salvation is the, is the work of the Holy Spirit, is the work of God. And that's what this covenant of grace, this idea of the covenant, teaches us. It grounds it in the covenant itself. We don't just say, well, we're, we're Calvinists. We're, we believe in the sovereignty of God because of this, 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 or this. We can go to Jeremiah. We can go to Ezekiel. And we can say, look, new heart, new spirit is a term of the covenant. That's why we're Calvinists. Even though I don't like that term. It's so many misunderstandings. If you don't like that term, come talk to me. I'll explain what I mean by that. We can look at the terms of the covenant. The covenant defines that for us. We don't have to run to the other passages of Scripture. We can just say that's the covenantal term. And of course, that's why also we ground our view of baptism in the covenant as well. The idea that the new covenant promises new heart, new spirit, profession of faith. And uh, that is those who are to be um, accounted as members of the covenant. So, covenant is the biblical structure or the structure that God has chosen to reveal Himself and define the relationship between God and His people. And we can always know where we stand by looking at the terms of the covenant. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to think about what are our obligations, what are our duties. All we got to do, just like a marriage... In marriage, what are the terms of the covenant of marriage? Well, in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, till death do we part. I know my duty is not based upon what I feel in the moment, because sometimes I don't feel like loving my spouse. I know my duty is that I can't run off and join myself to another. I know my duty is to care and love for my spouse because the terms of the covenant Even when I don't feel like it, even when things in my life are falling apart, the terms of the covenant define that relationship. The ups and downs of the Christian life are defined as well by the relationship detailed in the covenant. It's God, it's necessary because of sin. It's condescending from God out of His pleasing. It pleased Him. It's gracious and it's effectual. God will accomplish what He has promised. I actually got through all that. We do have three minutes. If uh, there wants to be any questions or comments or feedback or rebuttals.